Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV Radio in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, a live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin in the chair and at the mic. We take you behind the headlines to explain how Vermont really works, and to do that, we talk with the guests in Vermont and around the country, experts in their fields. We take your calls, 244-1777. If you want to email me, it's vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Today, we're going right into solar energy. More and more solar panels dot our roofs. The energy landscape is changing. Battery storage is here. Electric cars are here. What was once an expensive hobby for back-to-the-landers, like me back in the old days, in the late 80s, early 90s, has now become mainstream. Solar is everywhere. And here to discuss that transition is Shannon Jackson, Senior Solar Advisor at Green Mountain Solar in South Burlington. Shannon, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. My pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So let's start by telling us, uh, let's, let's take a 30,000 foot view here. Uh, is solar truly mainstream? Have we, have, have we tipped over into complete mainstream or is it still for early adopters? So that's a great question. Um, I think you know, people always say the best time to have gone solar was Yesterday, and the next best time to go solar is today. Yeah, uh, I think we have seen. You know, if you, if you look and drive around the state, we have more and more homes and farms and businesses going solar. So it's definitely gaining popularity. But there's a lot of room for us to grow, and especially you know now that I'm working in the solar industry for the past couple of years, you know I drive around and every southern facing roof I see, I'm eager to stop by that farm stand or whatever it is and talk to the the property owner because. Solar is a great way to save money as well as give back to the environment and set yourself up for the future. So let's get into how that works. If uh, And I've noticed, um, to stay on that point, that it's not just for the wealthy. Uh, you know, there are, there are programs, there's subsidies, there's federal and state subsidies so that Farmers and regular folks can go solar. Uh, you know, it's not just in the in the well-to-do communities uh, on the fancy houses. There, there, solar's now everywhere. Well, that's correct. A lot of people you know, I meet with people of all socioeconomical means, and it's very possible for anybody in the state uh, with the thirty percent federal tax credit that's available right now, as well as the fact that you know Vermont. We work with Vermont state employees credit union uh, and they are very you know generous with their terms and their loan options to make it so people can basically trade their electric bill for a uh, you know a solar loan and then in you know whether the terms of the loan is 12 15 years they no longer have that uh, regular bill and can start really saving money down the road from there so how does it work if if someone want, if you're a farmer or a Anybody else wanting to go solar, they give you a call and they say, I, I want to put solar on my roof or a solar uh, array in my field. Where do they start? 
So you can reach us on the web or call us, or a lot of times we're at the county fairs and different things like that. Uh, it starts with uh, just an initial conversation. Uh, we have a great front office staff that will guide you through, look at your property online, you know, kind of start brainstorming the ideas uh, beyond what you've even considered. And then um, if, you know, it's a possible project, which the majority are, uh, as long as you're not living uh, in a cave with no access to the sun, uh, we'll then set up a free site visit in which myself or another sole advisor will actually come out and meet with you for 45 minutes to an hour and walk through your home or property or business and, you know, take solar access readings, look at your electrical system, talk about, you know, the possibility of having battery backup or heat pumps or uh, installing a car charger in addition to a solar system. And then from there, um, you know, we'll send you a proposal in just a few days, followed by, you know, lots of follow-up questions as well as um, making sure that, you know, when you make your final decision, whether it's to go solar or to, you know, hold off for a while, um, if it's not right for you at this time, we will guide you through that process and um, make sure that you feel make the right decision for yourself. Now, there's a myth out there that uh, that Vermont doesn't get any sunlight and therefore going solar is a difficult or b inadvisable because it's uh, it's it's too dark around here. That's actually not true. Uh, I've I've looked at the numbers about it, but you know better than me. So Vermont actually, when it comes to solar, has a fair amount of sunlight, doesn't it? It sure does, and we're fortunate here in Vermont that we also have net metering policies that allow us to overproduce in the super sunny seasons, the spring, summer, and fall, to save up solar credits for the winter months. Um, and it's nice that we live in an environment that really does encourage people to live within our means um, in that factor. But especially when you look at you know solar on the global uh, viewpoint, Germany is one of the countries very similar to us with their climate and temperature and lots of snow, hopefully. Uh, and they also, you know, you go there and it's hard to find a roof that doesn't have solar on it. Right. Our guest is uh, Shannon Jackson of Green Mountain Solar in South Burlington. So tell us about Green Mountain Solar. What? Uh, how long you've been around? So we're a, a local, proud local Vermont company. We started in Heinsburg in 2016, and we have uh, rapidly grown about every two years into a new space because of the demand for solar in Vermont. We're now located over in South Burlington, we're still run by our run and operated by our president, who himself he lives over in Heinsburg, and we love the fact that yeah you know, we are a strong part of the community um, and really not only hire local Vermonters but really try to treat um, our fellow community members as well as we can, providing the best solar experience possible. And uh, one more policy question. Um, it, I do get murmurings from uh, in the political class that that the that the net metering program in Vermont uh, and the subsidies available are not what they used to be, and so some of the solar companies are expanding to New York State and other places where the environment's a little more friendly. Are there are there things that the legislature needs to do or can do to make solar more attractive in Vermont? I would absolutely say you are absolutely correct on that front. Um, we do have good policies, um, but as you've mentioned and hinted at, the net metering policies, that's the rate at which you get credited for your solar that you send or the energy that you send back to the grid, um, has slowly gotten a little bit not as strong as it used to be. 
back in the day, you're actually getting more money for the electricity you sent back to the grid. Um, and now that is actually you're charged more for the energy you pull from the grid uh, than what you are credited for. And we've seen that gap between the two expand, unfortunately not in the consumer's um, benefit. And so I would love, you know, with Vermont being the Green Mountain State, with Vermont being very uh, established in its strength as a progressive and environmentally focused uh, community that wants to reach our, you know, really admirable goals of being you know, carbon neutral and, you know, focusing on you know, being sustainable, um, I'd love to see us refocus our energies and try to close that gap and bring back some of those even more um, beneficial to the consumer uh, benefits and programs. Um, so I think there's a lot our legislature could do uh, monetarily. They could open it up so that, you know, some states actually uh, have incentives within the state in addition to the federal state, uh, tax credit for solar that helps people make solar even more affordable. So there are uh, still questions from thinking about my mother in New Jersey that, that people ask every day. And we can dispense with some of those today. Like if you put solar panels on my roof, you're going to drill holes in my roof and it's going to leak. <laughs> right? That is a, a real fear. I, yeah. I hear that one often. <clears throat> uh, that being said, you know, there's, there's basically two types of roof in Vermont. There's a standing seam roof, which, you know, it's the metal roof that has the actual seams that stand up about two inches off the roof. Yep. For those roofs, we actually don't have to make any penetrations into a roof to secure the system. We have clamps that actually hold right onto the seams. Oh, no kidding. And, yeah, they actually secure the system up to 120 mile per hour winds. And as long as we're not getting those in Vermont, we'll be good. Um the other type of roof we see primarily in Vermont is the asphalt shingle roof. And while those don't have a seam you can clamp to, we do have to make penetration to them, but we do so in a very uh, cautious manner. We actually use a metal sheeting and footings and caulking to make sure that it is sealed. Um, and on top of that, to make sure we stand by our work as a company, we actually have a 12-year workmanship warranty that includes uh, wherever we put our hands and feet on your roof. So... Uh, while it is, you know, we do have to make penetrations because there's nothing to really hold on to on a asphalt shingle roof. We do so in a manner that, you know, gives the consumer confidence that they are not going to have holes in the roof. It's amazing how, uh, how these are the kinds of questions that people ask that you must have to answer all day. Our, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shannon, let's go back to basic questions. When is the best time to start? thinking about uh, putting solar on your roof or in your field? So <laughs> that's not a loaded question. That would be uh, that would actually, be now or yesterday. That's true. Um, people, the policies of the past that we were talking about before, they were a little bit more beneficial. So that would have been a better time to go on solar. But they always say the best time to go on solar was yesterday. The next best time is today. Um, and I actually think, you know, in meeting with people, every day to talk about solar. When you start the process, it's usually about a two to three month window from the time you decide to sign the paperwork to when the solar gets put in your roof. And if you start looking at it today, it allows you to get through the winter months when we're not producing as much solar energy in the moment and set up your system so that it's live by the time that the sun's coming back out. So 
so that you can have a full year of production in the spring, summer, and fall before you reach the next winter. So today is actually a great time to really think about you know, the projects you want to do uh, this coming year. Uh, we have free site and solar visits to really assess and meet with you, answer all your questions, understand your property for solar. And you could, it's no pressure. It's not an educational process. We try to be a resource as you make your decision. But if people are interested, today is actually a great time to really plan for the coming months and put their solar on. So as soon as the spring hits, you're ready to go. So, okay, so you just answered the question about how long the process takes from the first contact with you to actual installation and operation, right? That's correct. Yeah. So usually it takes about, we always tell people about two to three months. Obviously, you know, if you're handling financing yourself or if um, there are situations that need to be really speed of timelines, we can work with customers to shorten that a little bit. But for the, the good rule of thumb is a two to three month process. Got it. Okay, now, uh, power outages. Um, I in, in the good old days, when I lived down in Chelsea, we lived off the grid. Uh, we had, oh gosh, 12 SolarX 60-watt panels. Those are, those are <laughs> oh, so, wow. yeah, right, you're laughing at me. I thought we were very cool. Um, we also had a backup generator. These these panels, these solar panels are now so much more efficient and powerful that you don't need twelve panels. Uh, you can do you can do it a lot less, right? That's true. I mean, the panels we use today, in comparison, are four hundred watt panels. Wow! So uh, we might have been able to do the amount of electricity that you needed for your site with just one or two panels, uh, comparatively. Wow. Um, but that being said, on the power outage side of things, I know that a lot of us in Vermont, myself included, recently had a, an outage over the holidays uh, with the high winds and heavy snows that occurred. And we're having a lot of people call in these days to talk about increasing the reliability and consistency with power and looking at a battery backup system. Right. Well, I remember fondly going down in the basement and filling the uh, topping off the lead acid batteries in my basement with uh, with with distilled water, wondering uh, you know what I was doing. But you you guys handle all that now. We do, um, and that can be part of the initial conversation. Or some people decide that they want to first go solar and then add batteries down the road. That's a viable option as well. My wife and I actually just went solar last year ourselves, and we are doing our projects in phases in which we put 32 panels on our roof. Uh, last February, and then hopefully in the coming years, especially, I'll tell you, on the December 23rd when we didn't have power for a good many hours, um, my wife was eager to get batteries on that day. So I'm sure there's batteries in our future, and we're planning on adding them down the road um, in a very plug-and-play type manner. Oh, well, so just to be clear, when you add a battery backup system, that means that when your power goes out, you're still going to have power, whereas if you just have panels on the roof, you are connected to the grid, and therefore, when your power goes out, you're going to go down as well, right? That's correct, yeah. and that's purely because while the solar could still be producing when the uh, the grid is down, there's safety mechanisms in place so that when the linemen are fixing the lines, we're not sending power back into the grid and shocking those workers. Right. Well, I was out as a proud Washington Electric co-op customer in East Montpelier. I was out for four and a half days. 
So, wow. he, so yeah, it was bad. The first two days were great. And, but about day three or four, you start getting a little crispy. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So here's the running hard, out of candles too, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. So here's the hard question. Uh, Washington Electric, uh, says that it buys all of its, that all of the energy it buys is renewable. And therefore, Kevin, you don't need to go solar because we do it for you. Now, I, while I buy that argument on a, on an intellectual basis, there's still a great, uh, thrill, it seems to me, even if your utility is all renewable, there's still a great thrill in going solar anyway, right? Very much so. I, I know that not just Washington Electric, but I know Burlington Electric also has a similar statement yeah. that they say, they are powered by renewables, but I, I think there's a lot of people in Vermont like the idea of doing it themselves, of yeah. being doing their part, being sustainable, not just relying on um, how another person is trying to do something. They like to make sure that they're handling it themselves. And while we were just talking about outages, you know, that is great that those power companies do have the means to provide cleaner energy. Um, but that means that once the grid is down, you still could be without power. Um, right. If you go solar and you even have a small battery system attached to your solar system, you will be all set for that outage. Okay. Now, uh, there's something in Vermont called the Ren- Renewable Energy Standard, which I don't pretend to understand. How does going solar work with the Renewable Energy Standard in Vermont? If, if that's too deep a policy question, we can put it off for another show. But, but it seems to me that if everybody goes solar, it drives Vermont's so, uh, carbon emissions down and it helps us meet our commitments climate wise. That's absolutely correct. Uh, that's a topic we get pretty deep upon, but it is Vermont does have very strong standards that we're trying to achieve. And we've actually set pretty numerically valued goals for the next 5, 10, 15 years that we're really trying to accomplish to lead with our values. And if people go solar, they have the ability to both um, help the state as well as, or they could, you know, dive into the renewable energy standards uh, and credits market and try to benefit from there economically. But it's it's a very deep conversation. I'd love to get into another time with you. <laughs> yeah. We'd probably lose listeners, but, uh, it's, it's a really important, uh, uh, policy issue that, uh, I mean, for me, it's going solar is, is not as much about lowering our emissions as it is about resilience. I mean, it, it, climate resilience is everything because as the weather changes and things change, who knows where we're going to head? Warmer, more storms, more power outages, etc. And in a rural state, you're going to have telephone poles like happened at Christmas. We had five utility poles snap in half. Um, you know, that's less about emissions than it is about resilience. And I makes sense that solar makes you more resilient, right? I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really good way to frame it and focus on it and as we look you know, to the future, when we talk about the price of electricity, when we talk about the storms and the, uh, the frequency of outages, when we talk about a lot of things that 
we could be heading towards, solar is a way that you can really secure yourself and make it so that you have, um, you know what you're going to have. You're not going to have, you know, the worry of outages or, you know, skyrocketing prices for electricity. Okay. Uh, where can people find you at Green Mountain Solar? Uh, so we're located in South Burlington. You're welcome to stop by our shop right on uh, 76 Ethan Allen Drive in South Burlington. Or it's probably easier for people to visit us on the web at greenmtnsolar.com. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Shannon Jackson, the expert on solar. Uh, give them a call. Stop by the shop. Find them online. Never a better time to go solar than now. If you care about climate emissions, that's one thing. If you care about making your home more or business more resilient in the face of power outages and weather changes, uh, that's it's also a good time to do it. I love the I, I like the phrase you used, which is trading your energy bill for a solar loan. Uh, if you're not going to pay cash uh, up front for the system. Uh, you can get a favorable rate on a loan through you from the Vermont State Employees Credit Union. But uh, it's 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 getting rid of your electric bill uh, has a lot of attraction for a lot of people. It does. Um, and there's a many, many, many reasons people can go solar from you know, the economic reasons to the leaving something for future generations to doing your part to reduce your carbon footprint. Um we would love the opportunity to meet with you and provide the answers to the questions you have as you explore this um, opportunity to be more resilient and get solar on your property. Well, speaking uh, from the experience of uh, raising family in Chelsea, Vermont, actually South Washington for you sticklers out there, off the grid solar um, with a – we had a backup Kohler generator lead-acid batteries in the basement, uh, a giant Sam Daniels furnace in the basement as well, so we were always warm, but uh, power or no power. Uh, it was a great experience, i got to say. I, the, my kids still talk about it to this day. So, uh, Shannon at Green Mountain Solar, uh, best of luck to you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for your time. Look forward to talking again. Okay, take care. Shannon Jackson, Green Mountain Solar in South Burlington. Uh, give him a call. He's on the web as well, and he'll talk you through how best to go solar. Uh, and there has never been a better time. Um, it's a great thing to do. We are going to come back and talk about the State of the Union address. I watched it. Uh, we're going to comment on it. We'll take your calls at 244-1777. I have purposely not read any of the commentary about the State of the Union. So you're going to get my reactions uh, un, unvarnished and unbiased and unaffected by reading the media or pretty much talking to anybody uh, outside my family uh, uh, after the break. Uh, it was fascinating. I have ne- I think I've watched every State of the Union since, oh boy, Richard Nixon. At least, and uh, I—I've never seen a State of the Union like that. That was wasn't quite a barroom brawl, but it was close. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be right back. You're listening to WDEV.
Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And from 9.30 until 10, we're going to talk about the State of the Union Address. You can call in at 244-1777. I really want to hear your views on this, um, so please don't be shy. Uh, we we take everybody's calls and we take everybody's views. Um, it's politics, so keep it on the level and uh, and stay professional and civil, but... Uh, we we love to talk politics on this show. It is, after all, a public affairs show. So here we go. I have not uh, I have not read any of the press uh, about the, the the State of the Union. So I am completely a, a clean slate here. Um, I, as I said before the break, I think I've watched every State of the Union uh, since Richard Nixon. Uh, Gosh, who came before Nixon? Oh, yeah. Johnson. No, I was too young. So, yeah, from Nixon on, I've considered it my uh, civic duty to watch the State of the Union. And um, I got to tell you, I have never seen a State of the Union like that. Uh, we have now taken – and it, it really reflects where we're going in the country, it seems to me. We have now taken what used to be a uh, – a moment of reverence, tradition, and uh, decorum, and turned it into not quite a barroom brawl, but it's getting closer and closer to the way they act in the British Parliament. Um, whether that's a bad or a good thing, I'm not altogether sure. But let's just do the facts, and then we'll take a call. Uh, Joe Biden talked for almost an hour and a half, uh, and if ever there was a guy who kind of likes a back-and-forth barroom-type atmosphere. It's Joe Biden from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and Wilmington, Delaware, with his Irish Catholic uh, roots. Um, the Republicans heckled him. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of the outlier right-wing Republicans, uh, called him, cupped her hands around her mouth and yelled at him that he was a liar. When he talked about the fentanyl drug epidemic in this country, uh, the Republicans yelled, began yelling at him, you caused it. Um, while the day, while, while the behavior was really, really bad and impolite, uh, it seemed that Biden kind of welcomed it. Uh, unlike back when uh, a Republican whose name was Joe Wilson called Barack Obama a liar when he gave one of his state of the states of the union. Biden seemed to enjoy the back and forth, um, and gave it right back. And, uh, I, I, and there, there were times where the divisions within the Republican party kind of, kind of showed themselves in which, uh, some of the more, uh, virulent members of the Republicans were shouting at Biden and Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, the new Republican speaker of the House in his chair was kind of looking over at them, trying to shush them. Uh, I have never seen that. Um, and 
when Biden called for uh, criticized Republicans for uh, threatening to cut Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security, uh, they hooted and hollered at him. And he said, oh, well, if you disagree, great. Let's agree right here that you will not demand that we cut those programs. And he kind of I, I wouldn't go so far as to say he laid a trap uh, for Republicans, but I just can't get over this the 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 view the vision of of uh, Biden seeming to relish uh what was going on. Uh lots more lots more reactions from me. Um I just thought it was a fascinating state of the union. Our politics, ladies and gentlemen, has changed forever. And it's a the cause is social media, it's television, it's all sorts of things. But let's go to the phones and get reaction. Rama in Williamstown, you're on the line. What'd you think of the speech? Yeah, good morning. Listen, I'm I'm just going to start off being a little, you know, sophisticatedly cynical here because I didn't watch it. I didn't even read much of the press, and that's what I wanted to talk about because you were talking about the theatrics of it. Yeah, and uh, the, the reason I haven't watched a, a State of the Union address in decades, literally. And I, I how dare you, sir? Well, it, it's. <laughs> In all of my life, I'm 66 almost. I'm 65 still. Right. And, uh, my entire life that I've been aware of politics, which is most of it, the what we, we think of as the State of the Union addresses have been basically political puffery and uh, re-election imagery yep. development. And so, you know, to me and, – and, you know, it was all this basically grad self-congratulatory talk punctuated by long sequences of clapping and cheering. And and uh, that was the theatrics of it. So that the fact that it's devolved to what it is now is no surprise. Right. It, it was coming down the path. I, this is my opinion. It was coming down the path the whole time because the whole time these State of the Union addresses – have not been, in my opinion, about the State of the Union. They've been about the politics of the Union. So here we are. Yeah, you, you make a great point. It would be nice to go back to the days when Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter uh, to the Congress and had it had it delivered by courier, uh, probably one page. But, uh, yeah. boy, we are not there, are we? Well, you, you know... I- being on the school, I was on the school board for a little over nine years, and uh, we got regular reports on the state of the supervisory union and the state of the school district from the superintendent. And they, although yes, they tended to go easy on themselves, they weren't always these self-congratulatory reports. They were these listing of facts and figures that were included, and we never get that really. Right. We, we, so, so anyway, I, I think in the rest of the people who ever heard it enjoyed or didn't enjoy i'll tell you the truth i was going to read it and normally what i've done up until this year the next day i'd read the speech what's on but as soon as i uh started seeing the headlines talking about marge green from yeah. north carolina georgia wherever she is from uh i i said no i'm not even interested because i know what it's about it's about joe biden trying to get up there and talk about what he's these wild-eyed fanatics up there just screaming, ranting, and raving, and engaging in their, I don't know, self-fulfilling anger, whatever it is. But Yeah. So. Well, 
you're not alone. That's this this state of events has clearly turned off a huge portion of the country. But Rama, thanks for the call. I really appreciate it. Uh, Fred from Newberry, you're on the line. Welcome to the show. Morning. It was very interesting. You didn't talk about the border. You didn't talk about the drug problem. You didn't talk about the war with China. China's been China's been China right now is 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 waging a chemical warfare on the United States. He never mentioned that one. And then he had a biological warfare, what, three, four, six, seven, eight months ago with COVID. That lasted for, what, three or four years? I mean, it was, I can't believe it. He never talked about the polarization in this country. The country's polarized. I mean, it's like, well, they had a thing on television that said we're like a, what do they call it, a, a house that's just in disorder, you know? Nobody, nobody's talking about the, the hard stuff. And then the other thing that I find very interesting is, how deep is the presidential bench as far as the Democrats are considered? If Trump runs, he says he's going to run, and he's up against President Biden, everybody knows who's going to win, even you do. Who? So, what can I say? Who's, who's going to win that race, Fred? Oh, come on. You know who's going to win it. Joe's going to win it. So oh, interesting. Joe's, Joe's going to win it. He'll win it hands down. Right. President Trump is evil. Joe's not evil. Joe's got, Joe's got a southern border. Let him in. You don't care. The Chinese have waged chemical warfare on us. That's okay. It's terrible. And Joe's going to win if he runs again. But the kicker is, there's a lot of Democrats that don't want him to run. Yeah. Well, 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 yeah, well, you make a good, you you make a good point, Fred. I'll tell you one thing we learned last night is Joe Biden's running for reelection. I mean, that, that message is loud and clear. Yeah, I know. And it's crazy because he's running for reelection. He's, he's, you know what? He's, I think he's uh, four months older than I am. Right. I can hardly get out of bed. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. Okay. That's okay. Fred, that's the best. That's the line of the day. That's the line of the day. Biden's is almost sold as me, and I can barely get out of bed. Fred, thank you for the call. Um, we are going to take a break and come back and keep talking about the State of the Union. There's so much to say and talk about it. But one thing we know now, Joe Biden is running for reelection. Brian, you take you uh, hang on the line. We'll come back to you after this break. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. All right, we're back. We're talking State of the Union. Uh, clearly, Joe Biden's running for re-election. Um, and Brian from Eden is on the line. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Good. Um, I, I I liked a lot of stuff that uh, Biden did as senator, and I've never been that impressed with him as a leader. I'm not a huge fan of his, you know, and people, the Republicans grab on to everything, you know, they say, he has, you know, his teeth are loose. He's uh, senile. He's on medication. They call him Sleepy Joe. Well, last night Sleepy Joe woke up. I got such a huge kick. Yeah. Out of the way he reacted, and it doesn't really bother me. This whole idea of, uh, you know, it's always been political theater. It just, it's a little more interesting. He was very, very like Street Fighter Joe came out. And I really kind of appreciated that. Um, the Democrats, for years and years, they tried to take the high road, or so they, you know, they think. And they just come out as, you know, uh, vanilla. 
you know, they're just sort of played. Yeah. And the Republicans are really partisan. And it either works great for them or blows up in their faces. But and the Democrats are always, you know, talking about bipartisanship. But, man, it was just really refreshing in a way. And like I said, nobody's going to call him Sleepy Joe today. Well, well, he seemed like almost a different person. Brian, stay on the line for a second because yeah. I, I let's keep talking about this. I I share some of your views, like uh, the way Biden and his malapropisms and where you know he has that uh, sp- sort of speech s- s- uh, difficulty from time to time, and he starts speaking too fast. I mean, my wife can't watch it because she's so afraid that he's going to start. Uh, tripping over words. I mean, he called Chuck Schumer the Senate minority leader and, <laughs> and, but I'm, you know, I'm actually kind of enjoying it. Uh, it, he doesn't seem to get to be bothered by some of the mistakes he made and he just keeps kind of rolling ahead. Yeah. It was, it was like I said, I'm not the hugest Joe Biden fan as far as national leader, but boy, I got a kick out of that last night. Yeah. I really did. How do yeah. you think and again I uh yeah. I have not read any of the press coverage as on purpose because I wanted to come to the show kind of clean. Uh how did you react to the the Republicans calling him a liar and Mar- like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the back sort of screaming at him uh and then McCarthy the speaker being up there on national TV kind of looking in horror at some of his Republican colleagues trying to shush them. Do you think that plays well for them uh, or badly? Well, I, I guess what I would tell Mr. McCarthy is get used to it, man. Yeah. He's going to be shushing them a lot. Yeah. You know, it's just that's that's what we have. Um, but I didn't see it on TV. I heard on the radio. And actually, you could hear her call him a liar. Yeah, you could. You know, the radio, it was very clear. Yeah. And I assume, uh, and I assume that TV blogs and New York Times are just full of all this today. Um, I'm trying to stay focused. I mean, I, I know those, those are the theatrics. Trying to stay focused. Theatrics. yeah. Yeah. But, uh, from a substance point of view, he's running for reelection. That's very clear. Well, it's like Fred said, they don't have a very deep bench as far as uh, national leadership. You know, yeah. they, they they don't want Bernie. They even moved the primary to, you know, remove that threat. Right. Um, but that's a know, great point. Yeah. But uh, he's I thought it was I just got a huge kick. It's like, well, it's about time somebody uh, fought back. You know, they booed Obama, too. But, you know, people turned their backs on maybe different things with Trump. It was just more subtle. Yeah. Like the squad came in dressed, you know, they it, it made it their displeasure obvious. Um, but, yeah, I didn't see it on TV. I wish I'd seen McCarthy up there sweating it. It's pretty funny. Yeah. You know, you know. Uh, I'd like to make another point. It was the first – I might have this wrong because Obama might have done it, but there was a moment – where he talked about the police killing of Tyree Nichols, and he had Nichols's parents in the audience. Um, and on TV, they were they were emotionally distraught. And uh, I've never seen a a president talk about 
the need for reforming the police in this country the way Biden did. He took two, three sentences on that. And then, of course, he moved uh, towards praising good cops, uh, talked about friends of his coming from uh, police and military families. But, boy, he spent a fair amount of time talking about uh, the killing of Tyree Nichols. That that was in, that was new. That was a whole different thing. Yeah, I missed a lot of the emotion because I didn't, you know, see it visually. So a lot of that stuff is interesting to hear about for me. But I, I was like, wow, what the heck? They they switched Joe's medication or something. He's he's on his game tonight. Yeah, I got a kick out of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- thanks for the call. <laughs> yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Um, yeah, yeah I, Biden. I was going to say he was sort of on his game, but it's it's not so much that that he's sort of on his game because he is always going to be. You know, I compare him to George W. Bush in that way. You know, Bush was uh, Bush was always making mistakes and sort of stumbling over words, and, and people criticized him about it, but it never bothered me. I mean, uh, you know, they know what they want to say. You know, some people read a teleprompter better than others. Uh, uh, George Bush's father was terrible at it as well, but, um, you know, Obama was real, a really good speechmaker. Uh, Joe Biden's not a good speechmaker. He's, uh, he's bad at it. But I think if I had to place my bets, I would think that Democrats today are very, very happy. Again, I haven't seen the press coverage, so I'm going right off my reaction to the speech. Uh, when you've got, when you got uh, a, a small majority, a minority of the Republican Party shouting at the President of the United States on national television, and the Speaker of the House is sort of glaring at them, begging them to to shut up, uh, I think that's a good day for Democrats. Um, but uh, Biden laid down a marker on the debt ceiling. He said, uh, "I'm not negotiating. If you want to negotiate." Spending cuts, which I'm glad to do, we do that in the appropriate uh, process. Uh, Republicans hooted and hollered about that. Um, and so we're going to have – that's going to be a long, drawn-out uh, negotiation. Uh, Biden's I, – I think Biden feels like he's got the people on his side on this one. I don't think he's going to budge. Uh, he's going to veto any – Legislation on uh, on on reproductive rights, uh, anti-abortion, but that such a bill would never pass the Senate. So that pledge to veto such a bill uh, was an empty threat uh, for political purposes on TV because uh, that's never going to get to his desk. Um, I I got to go back to the police thing. Uh, we. I wrote about this in my blog, which you can find at KevinKLS.com. Last week, uh, I, I was sort of critical about the fact that Mr. Nichols gets killed on a Friday. We're all upset about it till about Sunday, and then we forget about it. And Joe Biden could have forgotten about it. And instead, uh, he invites the parents of Tyree Nichols to the State of the Union address, uh, sing, uh, points them out, welcomes them, uh, and talks about the death of their son at the hands of police, uh, for no apparent reason. 
um, uh, in the State of the Union address. I don't think that's ever happened. Now, now Obama talked about Trayvon Martin, but he did it. Uh, he did not do it in the State of the Union, as I recall, that famous remark where he said, uh, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon Martin. That was done, I think, at the White House podium at a press conference, not in the State of the Union. So, you know, Biden makes a little history here. Um, he, he kind of breaks down the wall about never criticizing, uh, the police. And, uh, that'll be interesting to see how that plays politically. Um, big moment for Joe Biden. Uh, so that's the State of the Union. I'll be reading, uh, the press as you will be. Uh, thank you for your calls. Uh, it, it, we are preparing to, uh, in the next hour, spend some time talking about a new play. And it's a play about the infamous, famous, or unknown Hollywood screenwriter named Dalton Trumbo. Movies have been made about this guy. Uh, He was probably the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood and then uh, was was, uh, caught up in the the, uh, red scares and McCarthyism of the 40s and 50s um, and sort of banned from Hollywood, but then went on to, uh, and we'll get into this, a career uh, as a secret screenwriter of great uh, success, but uh, he wasn't allowed to be on, uh, on, on the movie script. So we'll be back with our guests in live in studio to talk about that. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. You're listening to WDEV. back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. You heard Lee Cattell talk about the uh, situation going on at both Montpelier High School and Rice High School. Uh, we will stay tuned. We're going to continue with our scheduled program. If Lee needs to break in with more news, we'll let him do that, or he can feed it to me and I will do it. Uh, but uh, we'll just adjust as we as we go on with the show, because we've got two really important guests uh, to talk about a great play coming up at the at the Plainfield Opera House. Dalton Trumbo is said to have been the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, author of such hits as 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Roman Holiday, Exodus, and Spartacus, among others, a member of the Hollywood 10 for refusing to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee allegedly searching for communists in Hollywood and was blacklisted from the industry uh, back then. Uh, Trumbo, Red, White, and Blacklisted, is a two-person play based on Trumbo's letters and speeches uh, written by his son Christopher, and that play is set to be put on right here in central Vermont at the Plainfield Opera House on February 10, 11, and 12, along with a matinee, along with a matinee show on February 12th, the star, uh, the director of the show and its producer, dramaturge, dramaturge, <laughs> are live in studio to discuss this play. I was going to include that word, but I didn't know how to pronounce it. They are the one and only Rick Winston, who I know is the founder of the Savoy Theater in Montpelier, among other uh, accolades, and also uh, the play's director, uh, 
Waterbury resident and dramatist extraordinaire, Monica Callan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having Thanks. us, Kevin. Sure. Okay. Why this show, Rick? Why this show and why now? Okay. Before we do that, okay. though, the play will also be put on in Waterbury Center oh. the following weekend. The seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth. Yes, at the Grange Hall Cultural Center. Yep, and it will be at the Main Street Museum in White River Junction as well on the fourth and fifth of March. Uh, and the Grange Hall is uh, owned and operated by Monica Callan. Is that correct? Uh, co-operated mm-hmm. with my husband Peter Holm. Yes. So, mm-hmm. okay, we'll do those dates frequently. So, because mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is drive up attendance at the shows. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a fascinating story. He was a—he was just a fascinating man. Yeah. Um, he, you couldn't really pin him to anything, which was pretty, pretty interesting. Well, I've seen the Hollywood movie with Brian Cranston based on it. I have not seen, which I assume you can get online, the documentary about uh, Trumbo. Uh, the world, as you said, Rick, the world seems to be uh, divided into. Uh, um, Two kinds of people, those who know all about Trumbo and those who don't. I was one of those who did not. Uh, so why this play and why now? Oh, we're going to take a break. Okay. Sorry to delay you. We're going to take a break to get updated uh, about the breaking news at Montpelier High School and Rice High School. So if you want me to go there... We'll take a break. Okay, you're listening to WDEV. We'll be right back. Lee Cattell in the newsroom on WDEV FM and AM. About 15 minutes ago, reports came in of officers on the scene at both Rice High School in South Burlington and at Montpelier High School. And uh, Calvin Cutler is going to join us from WCAX. And uh, Calvin, it sounds like at least one other school has been involved in reports of threats this morning. We're right, indeed. Uh, of course, Montpelier being the one you're talking about, but Rice as well, along with Randolph. Those are at least three schools which have uh, received these reports. You know, in Montpelier, uh, you know, police received a call, uh, reports of a shooting within the school, and uh, the alleged two students were hit. Uh, there were multiple agencies uh, came to the high school, and um, they, you know, went into the high school and they found out that there was uh, nobody was was hurt um, there was no weapon on scene um, the the call turned out to be unsubstantiated and they're thinking it's part of a, a, a bigger statewide um, picture where there's been other schools that have received similar threats but here in Montpelier uh, there's no injuries no firearm on scene uh, law enforcement is still sweeping the building but there's there's no immediate threat and there's no immediate injuries. So they are clearing the scene at Montpelier High School with no active threat at that high school. Have we heard any other information about the threats posed at Rice or Randolph? No information as of yet. We're working to um, to to you know get that that information. Um, but again, we're not hearing of any injuries or any substantiated uh, you know uh, credible threats. Um, these were all calls that came into local police departments. Uh, and of course, there was a, a huge rush to each one of these high schools, multiple agencies responding. And, you know, law enforcement on scene tells me that their training really is, is key to, to working together and having this interagency response. 
Um, but but from those other schools, no word yet. But it's, it, there could be other schools as well um, besides the ones that we've just been talking about. Uh, we, we're not quite sure. Um, this is still unfolding very quickly, and, and we've yet to uh, you know understand the full scope of it. Um, but at least here at Montpelier High School, there there are no injuries, uh, no firearm on on site. All right, Calvin Cutler from WCAX News, thank you very much for giving us some time. Once again, reports of threats so far at three schools, Rice High School, Randolph Union High School, and Montpelier High School. The report from Montpelier is no active threat at the school and no acts of violence have been discovered. South Burlington Police reporting that officers are investigating at Rice High School and also there no acts of violence have been discovered. We'll continue to update this story throughout the morning here on WDEV FM and AM, Vermont's news station. Radio Vermont News Time is 1012. We're back. That's good news. Plain Great and simple. News. Great news. Great news. We're going to talk about uh, Mr. Trumbo and the play that's coming up both in Plainfield, in Waterbury, and White River Junction. Rick Winston, why this play and why now? Well, a little background on the play. Uh, this was put together by Trumbo's son, Christopher, who uh, was originally just a one-off uh, fundraiser for some organization in Los Angeles. Trumbo had the reputation not only as one of the great Hollywood screenwriters, but also one of the great correspondents. And only the circle of his uh, friends and family knew about this spectacular talent he had and how eloquent and what a command of the English language. The response to this one-night uh, event was so strong that uh, Christopher Trumbo decided to put it together in play form, having these letters read with some uh, connecting material. It turned out to be a, a two-character play. And when it opened uh, on Off-Broadway in the early 2000s, uh, actors were clamoring for a chance to play Trumbo. Nathan Lane, Brian Dennehy did it for a while, and that was the production that Donny Osmond saw long ago and said, someday I really would like to put this play on myself and, and play Trumbo. And 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 he, Donny Osmond, who I know as a former member of the Vermont House of Representatives, yeah. uh, Central Vermont uh, resident extraordinaire, he'll be playing Trumbo. Yes, uh, Donny has a long career in the arts, a uh, founding member of the Two Penny Circus long ago, helped get Circus Mercus underway. He was uh, director of the Governor's Institute for the Arts um, for a long time. So Donnie has thrown himself into this show, uh, Heart and Soul, and uh, uh, got Monica as uh, enthusiastic as he was. Monica Callan, how many sh- live shows, plays have you directed in your career? Oh, my God, I have not. I have not counted them up. <laughs> well, you should. I probably should, but you know, theater is such an ethereal thing. It, it you you throw yourself into it, and then it's gone. Right. It just is. You know, it's it's a memory. That's the only right. thing. Um, what made you want to direct this show? Um, How well, did that happen? By the way, did someone approach you? Well, Donnie asked me to do it. I see. Yeah. Um. And I love Donnie, and and he's um. I just you know I I'll, I'll work with him almost any time I can. He's just a wonderful um creative partner and um 
he asked me to do it and <clears throat> I was actually on vacation and he was, he was in his Donny way, very pointed and wanted an answer now. And, right. Um, and I said, well, send me the script. And, and he goes, uh, well, I don't have the script, but I'm going to send you the opening passage. And I read, and I read the opening passage and I made my daughter and my husband just stop what they were doing. And I said, listen to this. And, I read it to them, and they looked at me, and I said, how can I say no? <laughs> right. The writing of this play is so stellar. It is just the – this man – I mean, you know, Rick talks about the, the um, his friends receiving these letters, but it was also his enemies. Mm-hmm. It was also the people that he needed to sway. It, it was also the people – that uh, you know, it, it was it was also the people that just came into his life. The way that he reacted and and expressed himself is just so extraordinary yeah. that the the words alone stand on mm-hmm. stand up. And yeah. and you know, to have Donnie and Nick Cherick read, um, you know, I mean, they're not reading them; they're memorized. Um, and just the, the amount of language that runs through this play is, you know, for any language geek is exciting alone. Uh, Rick, for the uninitiated, tell us who Dalton Trumbo was. Okay. Uh, and for the uninitiated, I will also explain what a dramaturge. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, that scared me when I read yeah, that. Yeah. Donnie, uh, Donnie invited to me you, to Rick. be, uh, to be part of this project, uh, as, the, uh, a dramaturge is uh, often uh, described as somebody who helps the director in the cast become familiar with the historical context of the play. I see. Fact checker. Uh, yeah, yeah. Fact checker. Yeah. Uh, uh, Advisor. Just uh, that the play yeah. should not happen in a vacuum. Right. So, and considering that many people have never heard the name Dalton Trumbo, um, it was important for the for the cast to really understand um, who this person was. Rick, before the break, I asked you, who was Dalton Trumbo? Well, Dalton Trumbo was a Hollywood screenwriter. He was originally from a mountain town in uh, Montrose, Colorado. Did a, not, not born to Wells, for sure. Um, did a lot of odd jobs before winding up as a uh, short story writer and then a screenwriter in Hollywood. He wound up writing some of the most popular films of the early 40s. Uh, and, but during that time was also a very uh, ardent member of the Screenwriters Guild, organizing the Screenwriters Union, which made him quite a target for the Hollywood studio heads. And uh, after the war, when the uh, wartime alliance between the U.S. and the USSR collapsed and we had the beginnings of the Red Scare and um, a lot of uh, fear and hysteria, and the anti-communism became a very big issue, and the studio heads uh, figured that the communist issue was a good wedge to destroy the uh, Screenwriters Union once and for all. And when the House Un-American Activities Committee, looking for headlines, decided to investigate the so-called communist subversion in Hollywood, um, they called uh, 10 people who they knew would be um, uh, 
would be uh, uncooperative in answering questions. Right. And all of them were members of the Screenwriters Guild and uh, all refused to answer any questions about their political affiliations and found themselves immediately out of work. So what does Trumbo do after he – because he's a well-known screenwriter at that yes. point. What does he then do? Well, uh, there was a limbo period while their uh, contempt uh, convictions were working their way up the uh, appeals courts. And um, in the meantime, he was uh, trying to sell scripts. Uh, sometimes they had his name on it. Sometimes friends of his put their names on it. In 1950, the Supreme Court ruled that, that you couldn't uh, use the First Amendment to, uh, as, a, uh, as a defense for contempt of Congress. So all 10 were uh, served prison sentences. He was in prison for 11 months and then moved his family to Mexico, where living was a lot cheaper. And he continued to write scripts. There is a whole network of what they call fronts of people who are not blacklisted who are willing to help him out and put their names on his script. And that's how a friend of his, Ian Hunter, won the Oscar for Roman Holiday instead of Dalton Trumbo. And uh, and this play is about his letters and writings to friends and enemies, as you say. Yes, it's it's basically through letters we get a picture of life on the blacklist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and the uh, the multifaceted person that he was um, as a writer. Um, uh, one of the things I find fascinating is how uh, his his writing um, point of view was developed, and it was developed through all of these jobs that he had and they were they were you know working slob jobs a lot of times um he did he did and he he served he served in um in Japan and he he had all of this life experience and in doing that that gave him the the fodder for all of his perspective on humanity and it was why he, I think, uh, or one of the reasons why he was such an incredible writer and why he was, you know, so good at writing these stories. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's so many facets of this man. And um, all of those jobs, all of those um, those things he had to do uh, before he became the, the, the paid uh, writer that he was, um, and then afterwards... He just uh, he was he was just a hard worker, and he was a survivor, and it influenced his politics and his his way of thinking and his his sense of patriotism. There, there's a there's a in the Times Argus piece uh, about the show by Jim Lowe. There is a quote from one of uh, Trumbo's letters to one of his enemies or former friends. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could describe that a little mm. bit. <laughs> he cuts deeply with a very sharp knife. You know, it, it's uh, to hear the words, you just sit back and you go, wow, there have been times that I wish I could write that letter. <laughs> you know, um, it's uh, he just cuts to the he, he's he's so economic and so razor sharp 
that uh, you just can't you can't deflect it. It's it it just it slices it flays the reader. Um, but he does it with a sense of humor. He, you know, he's, he enjoys it. He, in, he loves writing so much. And you can sense that um, in everything he writes, even if it's scathing. Yeah. Donnie said, uh, if you were on the receiving end of that letter that we were talking about, he said, I would just get into bed and pull the covers over my sheets and never get out. My head and <laughs> stay there for a month. Okay, Rick, let me ask you a personal question. The. <laughs> You're like me, although you're much worse than me. You're a film obsessive. Um, but when you peel back the onion on Hollywood back then, you realize I just saw that movie Babylon uh, with Margot Robbie. You realize that Hollywood was such a corrupt, misogynistic, terrible place. You wonder how any creativity and Goodness could happen out of such a place, and yet you, I love going to the movies still yes. to this day. Yes, and we always uh, do you watch ever, Casablanca as our as our comfort food. But do you, yeah. do you ever say to yourself, "I'm done. I'm not going to patronize no, no, the no. work of those people"? No, no, no. How because, come? Because there are people who are really trying to do good work there, yeah. Yeah. and uh, th- this is kind of one of the ironies that. Here's this committee investigating so-called communist influence, and these writers are saying, you know, if we wanted to get any kind of communist propaganda in our film, we never would have been able to do it yeah. because our, our, our scripts went to this production head and then that production head. And, you know, we've written – all these people were, were had the experience of writing – what they thought was a final script and then not being able to recognize what was on the screen. Well, it's got to go through so many hands and so many sensors that you wonder how anything creative ever got done. Well, I think the best they could hope for was some kind of let's have more speaking roles for black people. You know, let's have a, 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 you know, it was kind of good liberalism rather than, wild-eyed communism that they were that they actually succeeded in getting into the, their films. Monica Callan, you have been an actor. I've seen you act on the stage at uh, Bill Blatchley's theater. Unadilla Theater. Unadilla Theater. Uh, you've directed. Uh, you've talked to us about what drew you to this, but uh, it's certainly not the money. Um, <laughs> what, no, no, it's not. What? What draws you to this beyond beyond the writing and the it, – it's just the thrill of the theater? Is that what drives you? Um, it's the stories. You know, yeah. it's like uh, this story can be – I mean this story I think is important for today because of all of the division that's happening and the way that people get locked into one mindset without thinking about – um, the, the the facets of the of the mindset coming at them and and you know the, there's there's not enough there's not enough breaking down of what the human elements are and by putting these stories theater is about human stories right theater is about uh, putting you know just watching people do you know ridiculous things right and t- taking it away you know in a way that goes oh am I doing that. Yeah. You know, or oh, I know people like that, and it's it's a it's a compassion, it's a compassion tool. We're going to continue that after the break. 
You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Our guests are Monica Callan and Rick Winston. We're talking about the new Dalton Trumbo play coming to various places in central Vermont. We'll be right back. You're listening to WDEB. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back. We're chatting. We are. Uh, It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're talking about the new play uh, called Trumbo, Red, White, and Blacklisted, a two-person play based on the famous screenwriter Trumbo's letters and speeches put on by his son, written by his son Christopher, but being put on by Rick Winston and the director Monica Callan in coming to a theater near you, the Plainfield Opera House, February 10, 11, and 12, then Waterbury Center on what dates? The 17th, 18th, and 19th. And then White River Junction. At the Grange Hall Cultural Center. And then in White River Junction at the Main Street Museum. And to get to the Grange Hall Cultural Center, you take a right. North. North on Route 100. And That's assuming you're coming from Montpelier. It's assuming you're coming from the heart, the beating heart of the universe, Montpelier. <laughs> you're right. You could be coming from Burlington. But yes, you're going right. to go north towards Stowe. Mm-hmm. And there's a place called Waterbury Center. Uh, and directions can be found on the web, obviously. Google uh, Grange Hall Cultural Center. 317 Howard Ave. There you go. In the, in the other beating heart of central Vermont, Waterbury Center. <laughs> uh, more on Trumbo, Rick. I mean, yeah. what – what? here's the question I want answered. What makes you want to do this show? Monica referenced it in terms of our politics and where we are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's almost like we haven't come very far. Yeah. Um, well, uh, before I start, um, all props to Donnie and Monica. They are putting on the show. Yeah. I am not putting on the show. I was asked to help uh, get the show on the. Uh, well, Donnie's kind of a shy and retiring and, type, yeah. so. <laughs> so that, I am. I am just so thrilled to be associated with the show, and to be asked to serve as a provider of historical context, and um, just uh, not many people with every advancing year really know the story of what happened in this country in the late 40s and the early 50s. Fear, division, hysteria, um, suspicion, and a lot that we've seen come around again in uh, the last six years uh, or so. Uh, A friend of mine is fond of saying those... uh, uh, that, that uh, phenomenon of mistrusting your neighbor and uh, othering, as I guess is the current word, othering your, uh, somebody who disagrees with you, it's something that's always been present in American culture. And it takes a crisis for the, the rock to get turned over 
And these people are always ready to come out and say, you should not be working because you hold certain opinions. Yeah. And uh, so this is a, a very crucial time in American history. And my, only, my own family was affected by it because my parents were New York City school teachers at, at the time and uh, were threatened with the loss of their jobs. Um, and uh, it's the, the blacklist, how it affected Hollywood, it's really has seeped into it's part of American culture, but we don't really know it. And for those of us who kind of grew up going to the movies in the 50s and 60s, one effect of the uh, the Red Scare era and the Hollywood blacklist was the avoidance of difficult subjects right. that the, the studios were no longer going to take on really anything controversial. So while the national cinemas of Italy, Japan, France, you know, we're all dealing with the world as as we knew it. Uh, Hollywood was going further and further into fantasy land. Is it too much to say that uh, that, that the United States is really about we're, – we're still having that argument, the tension between those who want to take on the hard subjects that are uncomfortable and those who don't? Um, we're still there, it seems to me. I mean, I, I was just talking before uh, when we were talking about the State of the Union about this is the first State of the Union I've ever seen where the President of the United States talks about police brutality. And he went on at some length about the death of Mr. Nichols in Memphis at the hands of the police. Um, I've never seen a president talk like that. Yeah. And, you know, he's taking that on uh, in, you know, in a somewhat of an inartful way, as Joe Biden does, yeah. but he's taking it on nonetheless. Yeah, I think people who come to see this play will say, oh, yeah, that these still these issues that he's talking about are still very much with us. Well, mm-hmm. my 92 year old mother is listening in New Jersey and she had told Rick this story that when she was a young in 1951, a young newly married uh wife uh, working as a clerk at the CIA used to walk in her high heels to the House Un-American Activities Committee during her lunch hour to watch. And nothing brings redness and anger to her face more than talking about those days. And uh, I'm I'm not sure how you could walk the length of the National Mall in high heels for your lunch hour, but she says it and has written about it in a new... I bet her legs were just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing, the thing about it is that, you know, there's, there's, people sit on all sorts of fences around all of these issues. And it's really, I think, about breaking those fences down and just saying, hey, we're people. And, you know, it, it just, it, it's too much. I mean, I've become completely apolitical because I can't, I, I can't subscribe to anything that's out there because it's attached to all of these things that are just abhorrent to me all across the board. Right. And so how do you navigate that? And that's, um, that's something that I think Trumbo was doing. He was navigating 
you know, he wasn't, he, he, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure he was a communist. He right. just, he was just a hard worker and he just wanted to get paid, you know, and, and he lucked into this, this job where he got paid a lot and then he got paid nothing. And so, you know, it's, it's just life is, is hard. Life is really, really hard and it's hard for everybody. And we see that, um, that Trumbo, you know, we see what his struggles are through all of this. And regardless of what, uh, you know, the, the un-American um, committee said about him, he was still trying to be a good patriot. I mean, he served in this war. He, you know, he did all those things that are you, are supposed to give you some sort of politic, um, of, of some patriotic cred. And they were, he was stripped of that. You know, so it, and he was, he was not only fighting for himself, he was fighting for all the other people that were also, um, disenfranchised in this, in this manner. Um, and, and for the, you know, for those people who were disenfranchised in other ways. He was a, he was a humanist. And that's really what I take away. And that's what, that's why I think this story is for everybody. Yes. And the, le- and the letters show somebody who is really trying to live with integrity. Yes. And it's very hard right now to do that. And it was very hard to do that then. Well, it's hard to live with integrity and make a living. That's the point. It's all Faustian, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Rick, I think we underestimate, I was talking earlier about uh, the Memphis police killing and how it was all the, uh, a big issue on Friday. And then by Sunday, the, the country had kind of moved on. And uh, to a certain extent, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the Blacklist, it's a cool historical anecdote, but we we have forgotten the depths of depravity that that was. I mean, Robert J. Oppenheimer, Pete Seeger, uh, you know, true Americans banned from television, uh, security clearance taken away, lives ruined, yeah, uh, suicides. Yeah. Um, it was bad, and yeah. we forget that. Well, you mentioned the suicides and uh, one of Trumbo's great lines. I'm not sure if it's in this show, but uh, one thing that helped end the blacklist was when he won the Oscar under an assumed name. <laughs> that is the only time in Oscar history still that a winner has been announced and nobody has come forward. Wow. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of speculation that it was actually him. But he would refuse to confirm or deny because he wanted the story to be active. And it was about this time he referred to the Oscar as a worthless statuette that is covered with the blood of my friends. Oh, there you go. Um, so he he put the whole thing into uh, perspective. So, Monica, when you uh, take on a project like this, how does it work? What do you mean? Well, you have to read the script. You've got to know the lines. You have to meet the actors. You have to rent rent the hall. And then you're you're working with these people for how long? Pushcart Productions is producing this. Okay. I'm hired to direct it. And I'm doing some some other things too. But um, I'm just directing it. So when – Sounds really easy. Mm. <laughs> tell us, me, tell us your process. Um, so I, I, um, if I'm if I'm lucky enough to be asked, I read the script, and if it resonates with me, then I'll spend my time on it because we know that we're not getting.
paid enough to, yeah. you know, so it, it's got to be, it's got to be worth my artistic time. It's got to be, um, it's got to be a play that I want to spend time with and think about. And, um, and, you know, it's also about the people who are involved. And are we going to have fun? Are we going to go deep? Are we going to push each other? You know, our artistic, um, I'm not interested in easy projects. Right. Personally. Um, I like projects that uh, are going to um, shift everybody's artistic ground. Um, and this one does because it's, it's, it's historical. It's, um, it's, it's relevant uh, to today. And, you know, it's, it's, in a way, it's surprising that it's so relevant. Um, <clears throat> and these are the stories, you know, it, we talk about marketing all the time and we talk about how important stories are. And we have to be telling the stories of our of our history so that we can improve upon that. If we don't know those stories, we're just going to keep repeating them because we're stupid monkeys. And so we, you know, if we don't examine these stories, we can't make the world better. And that's what I want to do with my work is make the world better, even if it's one person at a time. And now let's go through the dates, and I don't, I'm not going to do this very well. So playing at the Plainfield Opera House, February 10, 11 at 7 o'clock, and a matinee on Sunday the 12th at 4 o'clock. Uh, and then Waterbury Center, Grange Hall Theater. Col- Col- Grange Hall Cultural Center. Go ahead. On the 17th and 18th at 7.30, and the 19th, the Sunday matinee at 3 o'clock. And then again at uh, the Main Street, yeah, Main Street Museum in White River Junction on the fourth. Uh, that's a Saturday night, and that's at seven thirty and a three o'clock matinee on the fifth. Are you? You talked about before the break. Uh, through your work, you want to make the world a better place. Well, I mean. What do I want to come and destroy it and leave it? I'm not. I'm not. You know, this is not my sanctification. This is my. This is. This is. You know, we have to leave behind no trail, right? Or the trail that we leave behind should be beneficial. So, I mean, how can how can you face your children? How can you face your grandchildren without that? Without that? I mean, who who are you? I mean, we're talking about integrity here, right? And that's what Trumbo was asking himself, right? But question in the last. Since 2016, that approach to life has been put to the test. Uh, our politics are completely tribal and screwed up. Um, there's a temptation on the part of some people to not do that anymore, to check out and say, I'm just going to take care of myself. Well, it's overwhelming. Right. You know, you can understand that. Um you know, I, I think, I mean, you asked, you asked before the break, why do I do theater? Right. Um, I do theater because I'm hoping to be able to present another perspective so that people can reflect on not just their own um, humanity, um, but the humanity of the people around them. Like they're, the people that they think might be their enemies, are they really their enemies? Right. You know, I mean, we, we put everybody in boxes. We profile people instantly. I can't tell you how annoying it is to be profiled as a Barbie. It's like, you know, there, what, what, what do you have to offer when that's the only construct that you can work in? Right. Um, you know, and that's only, that's only one 
profile in thousands, millions. I don't know. You know, it's it's everybody's profiling everybody and, and, and not really seeing who they have in front of them. And if they took the time, they might just find that that person has a lot in common with their own lives and their own their own desires. So, you know, it's it's just uh, theater allows that to happen in real time in a dark room with everybody else who the science says their hearts all beat at the same time. Right. So they're all in this, you know, this kinetic uh, communion in a way. And so they're watching this thing that that goes on and they can have a reaction in the dark with other people there which is not something that happens when everybody's on their screens. You know, it's like there, there is something really super powerful in that. And, um, and it's healing. And so that's why that's one of the reasons why I do theater. What's the state of live theater in central Vermont? I mean, this is pretty ambitious. There's a lot of shows and it's in a lot of venues. How is the Plainfield Opera House, Rick? Well, just as a patron, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, here's a almost derelict building 10 years ago that is now a fully functioning art center with a, you know, there's a just great concert of Irish music. Um, a few weekends ago, 100, 100 or so people were there. They got a full lineup for the spring. So, uh, yes, and... Uh, there, you know, I read uh, Seven Days, the yeah. shows that are happening at St. Michael's or the Vermont stage. Uh, the yeah, the seven, stage. the seven Days arts calendar is a thing to behold. Yeah. It's yeah. endless. Especially for somebody who moved up in <laughs> 1970 when not much was happening. Yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's a lively scene. I'm happy to be a part of it now. And Monica, you are busy as a director and actor. Um, I am. Well, not as an actor. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I've been doing more producing and directing, uh-huh. um, of late. Uh, I'm talking about another show that I'll be in, but, um, I like developing new work. I like helping playwrights. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another sort of, um, uh, direction that I go with, with all of this. Um, and you know, that's, uh, people don't necessarily want to see something they don't know about. Ahead of time, they don't want to, you know. So, um, I'm not interested in doing the play that everybody knows necessarily, right? Um, because those stories are being told, and they're being told at nauseum mostly, um, because they bring they put butts in seats. Um, so, you know, there's there's always that struggle with theater companies is how do you balance the season and you know, <laughs> and come out, you know, with with money at the end of it. So. Um, because the the tickets rarely pay for the expenses, and there's not a lot of grants out there, and you know there's uh, so um, I would you know I don't know I I I think theater is uh, people go oh, theater's dead because we got all these screens we got all this you know film and television we can stream everything whatever but you can't you can't get that experience that I was speaking of before on a screen you just can't no. You can't do that with a community um, of people that you may or may not hang out with. And the forces putting us on our couch in front of the screen are greater than ever. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and after COVID, yeah. people just don't go out. No. And, and I get it. 
but you know we we have to force ourselves i think um to to engage with each other and this is you know being in a being in a, the, in a theater is a safe way to engage you know you can not, you can like it or not it doesn't matter and you don't have to talk to anybody you don't have to talk to anybody <laughs> we encourage you to talk afterwards like right. go and have dinner afterward i mean that that's the only thing that i wish and i i loved i love about new york is you can go see a show and then go and talk about it over a meal right um i love doing that but I'm, but i'm a geek um you know it, it's restaurants uh can't stay open usually that that late but you know um it's it's about it's about creating conversation it's about finding new ways to do things it's about navigating this thing called life and and humanity and sometimes we do it well sometimes we don't right now it's it's you know i'm i wonder how well we're actually doing it yeah monica callen rick winston uh the play is called trumbo red white and blacklisted and it plays February 10, 11, and 12 at the Plainfield Opera House and then in Waterbury Center at the Grange Hall Cultural Center on what dates? 17th, 18th, <laughs> and 19th. And maybe we can get Positive Pie to stay open late after, so we can go have dinner after the show in well, Plainfield. Well, the, the Reservoir and the Alchemist sometimes oh, of are, course. are later. Oh, yeah. So mm. I'm here in town. Okay. So you, I'm, I'm going to plug our, our hometown. Yeah. yeah, Waterbury Center. But, but in Plainfield, positive pie. That's about it. Good luck to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us, Kevin. I'll make sure that I'll make sure to attend. I promise. Excellent. That's our show for today. You can email us at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. The show becomes a live a podcast where you can listen on your own time at wdevradio.com. Click on the podcast button. You can find me at kevinkellis.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest where I discuss a lot of these issues. I'll be back Friday with Apoorva Mandavili, who is the lead science writer for the New York Times, and we're going to talk about covid uh, and get an update on all things COVID. She is the authority and a really nonpartisan expert on this. Um, that will be Friday. We'll also do a lot of political stuff as well, so please join us. Our show is directed, produced, engineered, and managed by the master, Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you next time Friday on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on WDEB.